Welcome to the Red Maple Podcast and Webcast. I am here with a friend of mine and a super attorney, Jay McDaniel. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, Jay, you and I, we've been chatting probably for, I don't know, a little over a year or so. Uh, we've talked about the project. We've worked on some projects. And it always seems as though the, the area that we're focusing on is minority majority shareholder issue is that is that fair i mean every time we're yeah well when you and i talk because that's about 85 percent of my business <laughs> if we're talking about what i do that's that's where the topic will lead us yeah and and i read your website and for anybody that's watching it's called the business divorce law report uh after the podcast i'll put up some information about it but tell us a little bit about you know, your website, your practice areas, and then we'll get into some of the meat. Uh, sure. So I've been I've been representing people, mostly owners of businesses, either the majority or the minority owners, um, in the dis- disputes that they have among themselves. And about 10 years ago, a guy over in New York named Peter Mahler came up with the idea, this is really a business divorce. Just like a human divorce, only you're dealing with business people. Um, and it's kind of kept on. I, I really define my practices relating to the termination of business relationships. So most of the time, it's a closely held business where there's something has come along and folks are ready to, to throw in the towel and they're, they're going to move on, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, but I also see a fair amount of... Um, cases these days that involve high-level employees with restrictive covenants. Um, as you may know, the line between owner, equity owner, I, I have a membership interest in senior employee, I have a title that makes it look like I'm a membership and I, and I get paid, you know, share of profits. And that, that's become far more blurry, particularly, for example, in the lawyer industry, contract partners are very common. Um, they say partners, but they really don't have any equity. So th- that's that's really what the kind of the practice is. Um, a lot of a lot of the time, it involves somebody being terminated for a some type of wrongful act. That could be misappropriation of assets. That can be uh, failure to do their job. I've had cases, you know, where people had, you know, alcoholism was an issue and and there was a, somebody had to go alcohol or drugs. Um, And um, so that, that covers, that probably covers half of the business divorce cases I do. The other half is deadlock and dissolution cases where um, someone either can't get, there's a, there's a a true deadlock 50, 50, or there's, there is um, what I call the minority veto. Um, they're in, in small, small businesses, closely held companies, you have to get everybody on board. You need unanimous consent to do certain things, add a new member, and depending on the operating agreement. So that can lead to them coming down. So I do, I do a lot of counseling, um, but uh, I also do a lot of get litigation, mostly in New Jersey, which is in the Chancery Division, um, which is actually an oddity um, yeah. among yeah. states. We still have one. They've been eliminated in virtually every other jurisdiction. So, so, so let me ask you this, right? Because this, this is bewildering to me. 
you and I will probably agree. New Jersey is probably, uh, probably one of the states that is most generous to the minority shareholder. Yes, I, I think that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I did some research on this, been writing about this. And, you know, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, very, very friendly to minorities. But how many cases, and, and this is going to get into the, C, the, the CEOs or the entrepreneurs, but it, it's just mind-boggling. Um, the number of cases that I work on where there's a majority shareholder who runs the company. I say majority, you know, any... 20, 30, 40, uh, 50% is to the minority and they own the rest, right? So 60, 70, or 80 is to the majority. But the number of companies that are being managed by a CEO who runs the company uh, as if they um, can do whatever they want, right? They can, you know, spend frivolously or, you know, they can choose not to communicate the important aspects of the business to the minority shareholders. And it gets them in trouble all the time. Right? Is that, is that fair? It does. I think that it's fair. Um, that goes hand in hand with documents, operating agreements, shareholder agreements that are ignored um, and uh, lack of formality that comes in. But that's certainly true. Um, and particularly, it's, it becomes more true as business organizations have moved away from corporations and towards um limited liability companies. Yeah. Um, you know, the limited liability companies specifically is supposed to not be an entity that's sort of weighed down with, with formalities. Um, yeah. And, and, and I don't know, another hypothesis, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Many of the companies where I see, and, and we work on both sides, right? So as an a, a economist and a damages expert, we work sometimes for the minority and sometimes for the majority. So, you know, we're not taking sides here, but what I do see is when there's liability proven against the majority, invariably, I see that majority owner being somebody who owned an entire 100% of the business five, 10, 15 years ago. And then over time, they, they dealt out, they sold some shares, maybe they gifted some shares, and they just continued to run the company as if they owned the whole thing. And it gets them in trouble. It, it does. It does. Um, you have, I, I did a case of a few years back in which a, um, it was a, it was a C corp uh, corporation that taxes a C. Um, and the, the sole, there were two shareholders and one of, one of whom had to be invited to leave. Um, the other one had acquired his shares from his father 25 years earlier. And at the time that he acquired him the shares, it was based on a shareholders agreement that had been drafted 15 years before that, and nobody had looked at it since then. Um, so we have these documents that come in where you're dealing with documents that were that had been executed 40 years earlier, um, and which even which even had price calculations that were based on based on the capital accounts as they existed then. Um, so that that can happen a lot. Um, now, what you, what you see frequently is um, you see people who um, exercise a lot of control. They, they build a business. You know, the statistics on how many businesses go from first generation to second generation is, is 
fascinating. It's it, I, I've seen numbers as low as ten percent. Um, so so it is it does happen that people they 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 whittle away their shares um, by giving them away by granting equity interest to key employees. Um, any number of ways that can happen, and I think that what what folks who do that don't realize sometimes is the, the burden that they're taking on. Um, I mean, we, we, we sort of wanted to talk about what, what it means to be the majority. Um, but if I, if, I'm, if I own a business and I'm willing to give 5% interest to, to you know, four key managers, um, I really need to get talked to a lawyer before I do that, because now what I've done is I've converted them. I've converted my relationship into an arm's length relationship. And you work for me. I can terminate you at any time, assuming that there's no you know, contract to you don't really you work for the company. Um, you're part of the ownership structure. And now if I want to terminate you, I can't. I may be able to you may be able to the majority may keep you out of the office, may eliminate your responsibilities, but you're still an owner. Um, and you're an owner until you get thrown out. And there, there are ways that that gets, that gets done. And for the majority, um, uh, the majority owner who's created these new minority interests is now subjecting himself to oversight that didn't exist before. Because now that he's got minority members, He's got a whole, he or she has a whole host of other duties that can arise depending on the, the jurisdiction that they're in and, and so forth. Um, so yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. All right. So, so let's jump in there then. Uh -huh. What are the duties that a majority shareholder owes to a minority shareholder? Well, in New Jersey gotta, predominantly. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it can vary depending on the circumstances, but New Jersey has generally recognized that, that, that owners of a business, of a closely held business are fiduciaries to each other. So that they have duties of loyalty, duties of care, um, duties not to misappropriate assets, um, gross negligence and so forth. Um, and they can vary depending on the type of entity. What, what happens when you're a controlling shareholder and where it can really be different is that you can lose the right to, to vote your economic interests. Um, there's this concept that, that in most, most modern entities with limited liability, they're the managers who run the business for the benefit of the, of the shareholders or the, the non-managing members of a limited liability company. And that um, they don't, you have two separate, you have a different hat on, which is you don't like the, pro the proposed merger. Um, you have no obligation to vote in favor of it. Um, if you don't like the idea of taking a mortgage on or debt or whatever, um, those things can, can um, you can vote your interest as a shareholder. Sales of the company, um, you can vote your interest as a, as a is a member of a limited liability company and absolutely have an absolute right to block a sale of the business or to block the admission of a new member unless something else is in the, is in there. So the controller um, who, the controlling shareholder who 
has an offer to sell out may have to may may have to and probably will have to look at how does this affect the minorities um he can't just pursue his own economic his or her own economic self-interest but has to do what's best for the entity and best for all of the all of the equity holders yeah so it has to be fair right um there you know Delaware, which is the, the, the state where most of these, these concepts are developed, um, is, has developed you know, a number of these tests. They have you know, the, the entire fairness test, right? Which is yeah, sure. when you have, a, when you have um, a transaction in which someone's on, basically on both sides, um, there's a he's negotiated, a, the controlling shareholder has negotiated a sale of the company at a price that, that he likes, um, and, um, or you can have a directors who are on the, on the same side of it. You can, you can have these hoops that have to be jumped through. The courts normally won't, won't second guess the judgment of the managers of a business. But when you're on both sides of the deal, they look at it very carefully And this entire fairness doctrine will let the, let the judges take a look at the, at the details of it. So that carries over into New Jersey, um, mm-hmm. Um, in most most jurisdictions that that have this, so um, you they have you have to look at what the effect of this is going to be on everybody else that's involved. And in a closely held business, it's almost difficult to conceive of the myriad different ways in which the the majority um, shareholder, the controlling shareholder, could be limited in his ability, his discretion, his or her discretion. By the fact that there are minority shareholders who'll be negatively affected by something they want to do, without question, and and it's interesting because you know, I just worked on a case. I can't I can't give you the name of the case at the moment, but I just worked on a case where the majority shareholder clearly said we we're going to sell the business, and the minority shareholder said we don't want to participate. Heavily fought, heavily litigated. Uh, my argument was real simple: you guys can save a ton of money in litigation, if you just got a fairness opinion, right? And the fairness opinion, for those of you that are watching, you're not familiar with it, but I'm, I'm a big advocate. If you have a, a transaction, if you're a, if you're a corporate attorney or if you're a litigator, but if you have a, if you have a transaction where the minority does not like the deal and you choose not to get a fairness opinion, I mean, that is absolutely insane because yeah. the fairness opinion by de facto is, 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 is being put in place by an objective third party to make an argument as to, you know, this is fair both to the minority and the majority. And if you don't do it, you're putting yourself in harm's way. If it's, it, it, and, 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 and if you lose the case, the whole deal can be unraveled. Uh, in, in some of the downstream effects on that uh, economic effect can be devastating. No, they're huge. They can be absolutely be huge. I mean, one of my strategies when I'm, I'm involved in a litigation over, Typically, someone has to go. People yeah. can't or yeah. won't work with each other anymore, and there can be a, a myriad bunch of different reasons. But one of my one of my strategies is to always try and get an early valuation of the of the case, and if possible, to get the the judge to engage his own his own expert. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is that, in my experience, and it's a few years now. Um, a business is worth what the business is worth. I mean, you can you can you can push 
the the needle in some directions a little bit, but it's you know everybody's kind of playing with the same set of rules. And the expert, the valuation guy who comes in and has a you know a real outlier um, of an opinion is usually just disregarded. So um, you know I find that that the numbers don't change very much. Um, you tell me what the you come in and you look at look at I ask you to look at a business and tell me you know give me something what you think it's worth. If if what you've done is well reasoned, everybody else is going to come to the same conclusion. You know, yeah, give or take ten percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, normally, right. I mean, normally I, I give you an example of, of perhaps a, a time that didn't happen. Uh, this is all a public record, so I could, I could talk about it, but it was a, uh, a company called Crownfish, and it was a wonderful company owned by three family members. Two of the family members uh, decided they didn't want to have the other third party member because the other third party member was, uh, you know, misappropriating assets. Mm-hmm. Right. There's two valuations done. One valuation puts the, the minority interest at about uh, um, 1.5 million. The other expert comes in and says that the, uh, the party's interest, the 30% party's interest is $19 million. Right? That creates, yeah. a, that creates an enormous problem to the point where, you know, what's the judge do? Oh, goodness, I got these two valuations. They're so far off. Let me, spit the, let me split the baby. And then they had to file bankruptcy. Seriously, had oh, to find bankruptcy because, you know. But uh, my my point is, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you, but my point here is that there's so many unknowns that if you gel, if if you cover your bases and you work with somebody like yourself or or others that are going to make sure that the operating agreements are buttoned up and the things that you're doing are meeting the fiduciary standards and responsibilities, then you won't even be we won't even be in these problems, right? Yeah, most of the yeah. time, or 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 even worse, right? I, the one thing that I, I think is is so important for uh, for entrepreneurs and business owners is to having that operating agreement. Tell me if I'm wrong, but having that operating agreement, the metrics in which which you're going to value the company, and oh, agree. It's important. It's important. It is. Um, so I, I, I again reading much of your website. You know, I, I'm looking at one of your one of your articles now. You know this, and you refer to the Berkowitz versus Power Mate Corporation. What's uh, uh, what's that? What's that case all about? It's interesting. It's a Chancery Division case from 50 years ago or so. And Chancery is a trial court, and generally not, you know, not given a tremendous amount of persuasiveness. Um, but um, you mentioned that you you'd read it, so I actually went and looked to see how much it had been cited. It's been cited all over the country. Um, and it's a, it's actually, it was, is a persuasive case and it's cited a lot in New Jersey too, but you you see, you know, courts in South Dakota saying, oh, power meet decision, you know, and, you know, and the basic idea behind that is that whatever may be your duties, um, in any given circumstance, if you can drag somebody else along, then you have to take care of them. So that, that's almost the, the, the nature of the fiduciary duty. If I have the ability as a controlling shareholder, controlling member, or have effective control of an entity so that I can, I can make the others in the business follow my decision, then I have to make that decision in their best interest is probably the best way to put it. So, in, you know, the, the, the Power Make Corporation, it was a, it was a case involving, um, involving a, a, a transaction and questions of whether or not the, 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 um, 
the, the majority um, was abusing its discretion. And one of the ways this can come up is it, you, you see it come up was um, frequently is in um, squeeze out mergers. Um, so very often the, under the corporation's code in any number of different jurisdictions um, will allow the controlling shareholder to buy out the minority shareholders through various strategies, mergers and the like. So um, it, you can form a new corporation, merge the corporation into, into that new corporation and take anybody out who owns less than X percentage for cash. And so by doing that, the controlling shareholder gets all of the, gets all of the stock, um, but controlling shareholders on both sides of that transaction. So the price has to be the price that is fair, not the price that's in the, the interest of the controlling shareholder. So, oh, I lost you for a second. Can you still hear me? Yeah, sorry. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> what, what, I was, what I was suggesting is that in a case like that, where a majority, and, and now we're getting into my world a little bit, but where a majority wants to buy out a minority, yeah. in, a squeeze, in a squeeze out merger, uh, most often, we're not having discounts, right? Right. Most often. Most often, yeah. And, and it can, but it, it can be, though, too, just price. Um, you don't have anybody looking over, over the shoulder to make sure that the price is fair. Um, in the PowerMate Corporation, um, there was you know, there were any number of issues. There's another, there's another famous, you know, a bank case. Um, and um, it's one of the two cases on this majority, you know, uh, obligations. And in that case, there was an issue about how the minority had, you know, these various minority shareholders, whether or not they'd exercise their, their right of dissent, had they done it according to the statute and time, um, for our viewers uh, who may not know about the right of dissent is that in certain instances where there's a corporate action, um, the, the share, a shareholder can dissent, um, which has a legal effect of them basically tendering their shares back to the company and the company has to pay them fair value for it. Um, so in that case, um, in this bank case, there was a whole issue about whether the majority had given full disclosure, even mm -hmm. to the people who didn't exercise the right of dissent. And what the court says is yeah. that you always have a duty to be honest to, with the minority. Yeah. Was that the Lawson Martin Wheaton case? Was that the one? No, it's, um, I'm going to look it up real quick while we, uh, while we talk, but. Yeah. Um, two cases come to mind that are similar for those that are watching, um, at least in New Jersey that are important is uh, Lawson, uh, Martin and Wheaton case. Yeah. And the Balsamides case, both both of which came out on the same day, which is kind of interesting. It is interesting, right? Yeah, and they both and they both came out and said the same thing that if you're a majority shareholder and you want to buy out a minority shareholder, then you can you you can indeed do it, and it can be done with discounts. But I think it goes to um, Jay. Tell me if I'm wrong. It goes to this idea of uh, of duress, like if you're forcing them to sell with a discount or you're oppressing the minority shareholders, meaning the majority is oppressing the minority shareholder, 
and it's in, in the court finds that to be true, that you have to remove discounts for things such as lack of control or lack of marketability. New Jersey's, I think, is generally prejudiced against any discounts. I mean, you, you may you may have a discount applied at the enterprise level because it's just it's you know, and there's actually, as you know, some dispute about applying applying a discount at the enterprise level for lack of marketability of the enterprise. Sure, sure. But you also have this minority issue. And I would say that the majority position right now among judges and across business entities is that there are no discounts unless somebody is, is engaged in, in misconduct. And the reason for that is that most often the discounts are applied against the people without power. And so if you're the controlling shareholder and I, and you, you, you know, you've, you've been here and I don't know, it's family's family business, right? You used to be married to my daughter and then you divorced her. Now I'm going to fire you. So, um, you know, is, as the, is the controlling shareholder, that's oppressive behavior. It's not fair. Um, so you shouldn't be able to benefit from that by reducing what you have to pay to the, to the frozen out, squeezed out, oppressed shareholder by a discount that represents the, their minority interest. Um, so. Is it fair to say that that is one of the duties of a majority? You know, is that a fiduciary duty that, you know, you can't squeeze them out or, you know, take arbitrary, just make arbitrary decisions based upon, you know, your feelings or circumstances that uh, preclude, you know, that, that it, and, and we probably both of us see it, that incite in the, the CEO or the, the majority to make these uh, irrational decisions from time to time. Well, you know, oppression is judged by the reasonable expectation standard. You know, we, you and I started a new business together. We were both going to work there. We were both going to share the, um, the, the profits and, and uh, bring our children into it, into the business. Yeah. So 20 years later, when, you know, I had a, I had a case um, in which um, two brothers owned a business and one, and they, they had put their, their, brought their kids into the business and they each had one and they each had two. And then the one had four. And so the one brother said to the other, you know, I, it's not fair. You've got four people at the trial and I've only got two. Um, and those two have to leave. So, you know, what's that? And, and then you go back to that and you say, well, that was never our, my expectation was that our children will work with us. And that can be the sort of non-tangible, non-monetary expectation that you can have in a case like this. And that can be oppression. So um, when you when you have a corporation in which somebody is, is misappropriating or competing with business or even just not coming to work, um, you go back to this idea of what's oppression. And oppression, generally speaking, is behavior that frustrates a reasonable expectation of the, of the other owners. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it can yeah. be fraud, yeah. it can be unlawful conduct, but um, it can also be things that um, are um, not mm -hmm. often thought of as, as 
being not always thought of as being irrational. Hmm. Brother A, brother A does not want to be in debt, does not want a credit line, does not want to expand, does not want to buy a new factory. Um, the operating agreement says any expenditure over $15,000 has to be approved by both of us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, brother B, you know, believes in they should have a new factory and they should do this. Um, what's what that's more of a deadlock situation, but um, th those are the kinds of decisions in the, in the closely held family business that yeah. come up all the time. Yeah. And what about while we're, while we're talking about it, right? So every now and then you, you find, you find a majority business owner who owns 70% and then they give up, they give up another 10%, they get to 60 and then they get to give up another 10%. And now they're at 50. Yeah. Now I'm at 50, 50, which isn't a good situation either. And they give you an, an incredible case that uh, we worked on. It was Wachanski versus Zoline. It was in the Ninth Circuit. So a few years ago, uh, Zoline, who was uh, ultimately found liable, was a student, if I remember correctly, was a student. And he went to go work for this company. And this gentleman, the CEO named Mark Wachanski, continued to give him more and more shares in the company, Jay. Yeah. So ultimately, he owned 50%. And as soon as he owned 50%, he thought to himself, well, you know, now I'm a controlling shareholder. He literally took all of the computers, all of the chairs out of the building overnight, all the employees, and went and started a new company. And <laughs> what, what, this is true. This is all in record. In, 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 a, in a, I, I, I forgot the secret layer or something like that is what huh. they referred to it as, right? So we get involved in this case and we were representing uh, Wachanski who owned the company and started the company. Well, this guy takes literally the business for two years. This, this, is, this is litigated. It's a very, very profitable business. We go to court, we go to trial and, you know, Judge Askus, uh, Judge Campbell of the Ninth Circuit, federal judge, mm -hmm. incredible, incredible judge, says, what's the damages? So I said, well, Judge, you know, just, just in the historical, the two and a half or three years of, of lost profits that Mr. Wachanski made, he's due about $25 million. And then in addition to it, he's due the value of his business, but I can't give you that information because we don't have it yet. Here goes, Judge rules. $27.5 million lost profit. Okay. Yeah. And my, my point is that was only half. That was only half of what I think the damages were. I think the damages were probably over a hundred, over a hundred million because this company was extremely profitable. They'll never pay the bill. They were going to never pay anything greater than 27 million. But the point is, well, at least my point here is there's so many cases that I find where either the CEO owns the business and gives out a little bit of shares, but keeps a majority interest. Mm -hmm. And he, and he or she will act like, you know, act in a way that it's still their business exclusively and they'll run willy nilly with the business. And then I see other cases where the CEO is trying to do the right thing. In this case, he just wanted to slowly depart the business and give this young gentleman more and more ownership. And in that case, he was totally taken advantage of. And 
So, and so what do you do? Like, what does a CEO do? Like, what, what can you provide a CEO, right? With, with, your, with your vast knowledge, what can we tell a CEO or an entrepreneur on how they should handle this minority majority, uh, you know, uh, dual, like a, a, a dualism in some, some respects, right? How do we, what do we do for them? Yeah, I usually make people pay big bucks for that to yeah, answer that yeah, question. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> here's, it, what, here's what I do. 30 seconds or less. <laughs> here's what I do. Never give them equity. Give them a profit interest. Um, okay. And uh, make, sure that you, make sure that you have classes of shares so that, you know, your employees, um, if you have to fire them, then you don't, you know, you have provisions in your agreement that say, so, f- for example, one of my typical agreements says, it's a C-Corp, it's a corporation, closely held, an S-Corp, right? In order to be a shareholder, you have to be an, a, 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 um, an employee of the company, right? If you cease to be an employee of the company, then you have to sell your shares back to us. The deemed value of your shares is $15 a share um, or you know whatever it may be so that or the deemed value of your interest is 250 bucks. Um, so when, when a person is terminated, um, they get the $250 and, and they go on. Um, the uh, uh, the issues that you can face, and, and I see it all the time, is that um, people come in and they're, they're they're excited about a business, and they're real producers, and then they're given a piece of it, and now they want to coast. Um, and you know, and then the the owner's in a position because how does the owner get rid of them now? This, this, this business was worth a million dollars. I gave this guy 10% because he, he thought he, I thought he was great. And, um, you know, now I owe him a hundred grand to fire him. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I tell my clients, you know, pretty much ne- never give employees equity um, yeah. unless you really, really, really need it. Yeah. Um, here's, here's something to think about. I'd, l- I'd love to get your thoughts on this and, we're, we're already up, up against some time here, but um, in New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, you probably agree with me that restrictive covenants don't really carry much weight. It depends, but yes. It depends, right? But New Jersey, you know, I, I, I did a little research here. New Jersey is one of, the, one of the, the states, not too dissimilar to California, that are very anti, for the most part, when you look at all the cases and uh, rulings, they they tend to be a state where restrictive covenants aren't often um, enforced. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there's, there are certain circumstances where clearly a good lawyer can make sure that that happens. So in New Jersey, you get shareholder oppression, right? So we know that there's a possibility, and this is the Balsamides case that I mentioned. If I were to give somebody, so let's say my top salesperson, mm-hmm half a point, 1%, thousand shares. I don't know, depending on the company, but they give them a very small piece of the, of the action, of the ownership. Now I understand all of a sudden now my relationship changes with that individual. But if that individual were to leave, and, and, and let's assume that I also have them under the restrictive covenant, but if that person were to leave, they're an owner and, a, and they have a restrictive covenant as an employee and they were to leave, go somewhere else, and they were to take clients with them. Um, do you think that there's any validity in uh, going after them as a breach of uh, not only the restrictive covenant, 
but also breach of fiduciary duty as a shareholder. That that's not a particularly unusual situation. Okay. Um, so um, you know, and the other thing to, to think about too, in that is that um, if there's no restriction on competition, and it's a a sales driven personal you know kind of organization, um, real estate management company, law firm, accountant, whatever. Um, that the absence, there can't be a restrictive covenant with, uh, um, with a lawyer, but for example, in a, in a real estate management company where everybody has a book of business, right? They have the properties they manage and there's no restrictive covenant. When that person leaves, there's, a, there's some really good arguments to be said that they don't get anything because they, there's, they took their book with them, you know, all the restrictive covenant, all the goodwill of the business was owned by the individual members. And that's, that's the case with lawyers and other kinds of things. So, um, but, you know, as a business, probably you, there's a few things that people overlook. Um, who owns what? Um, very often, the, the operating agreement won't say who owns the software and the copyrights and the trademark and the, the client list and all that kind of stuff, which leads to a whole um, host of uh, collateral litigation. I, can, I tell you that on just a week ago, I was denied certiorari by the U.S. Supreme Court over a copyright case that has been pending for 10 years. I'm just a little disappointed in the result, but it's been pending for 10 years, and it's from a business divorce case where the operating agreement didn't say who owned the copyrights in it. Um, so, you know, the restrictive covenant, it's, it's important for owners to 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 try and control that. Um, the, and it's also important to remember that um, restrictive covenants incident to the sale of a business are more enforceable than those that aren't. That being the case, the argument that I would make, which I have made, is that when you became a member of this entity or a shareholder or whatever, when you were granted equity, it was a transaction. And so you, you stepped into a new league and therefore I'm entitled to broader enforcement of the restrictive covenant than I would be if you were just an employee. Yeah. Yes. Totally agree. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I have a case, I have a case now, um, sales driven organization, um, three guys, one of whom left immediately started a competing business, um, took a book of clients with him. Um, and then, and then turned around and sued for, you know, as an oppressed minority member, um, and, you know, want some other kind of value. And my response is, I mean, there's, there's inventory, there's assets, there's accounts receivable, there's, you know, hard assets, but the goodwill, I don't think, I think you took everything that you were entitled to when you left. Um, I, I obviously have the majority there, so. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. So there's look one one of the things about uh, minority majority issues, especially in this state, in the state of New Jersey and in New York City. Um, I think Delaware obviously has much more. Uh, you know, the, the, the rules, the rulings are uh, much more clear than they are here in New Jersey. Well, what's the 
I mean, is this is the takeaway for for our clients, the entrepreneurs of the world, simply, you know, hire hire a really good attorney like Jay McDaniel, <laughs> but, right? I mean, is, is that is that it, or um, is it is it that coupled with something else? I mean, what what do we tell our clients, right? Because I, I got to be honest with you, I'm probably, you know, of the 60, 70 cases we do per year, I would bet you. Uh, one fifth to one third of them are always minority majority shareholder issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what do we tell these guys and gals? Um, I mean, have have good documents. I mean, they kind of have good documents. The documents should, at a minimum, have buy sells in them, both deadlock buy sells and buy sells if somebody leaves. Make you know, think about your exit strategy when you form the business. Um. But really, it's, a lot of times it's a question of honesty and fact, um, yeah. and 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 reliability and faithfulness. A lot of you, you know, there, I I thought of this case. I, the name of it escapes me. You talk about typical um, majority abuse, right? Which is that you have um, in that case, you had a family business that was having an issue, but they owned a trucking company, and so the majority, which had the ability. To, to control basically caused the company to shut down. And then they started a new company without the, the troublesome minority shareholders, right? So, you know, that was a case in which they had breached their fiduciary duties and they had breached them in a way that was still ongoing. Um, and the court stepped in and said, no, you have to pay the minority for the value of this business that you sort of co-opted in the process. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, those, those kinds of cases, um, you know, that's an extreme example, but you can, you can, um, you can have any number of, of circumstances that come up where the guy who's got 75%, you know, wants to do something. Yeah. And, you know, and it doesn't really matter what the others think. I think you said something before that I'd like to uh, just highlight for everybody. You said you should be thinking about your exit. That's what you said a few minutes ago. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I think any, any entrepreneur business owner should always have in the back of their mind, uh, what does the exit look like? How do you get there? And, and quite frankly, I, I do believe that they should pay, they should pay, you know, pretty, pretty good, uh, um, um, amount of money to attorneys such as yourself um, have a really strong accountant that has their books and records, you know, clean. So we, we don't have these issues. I think they should hire and have at the ready um, at all times, you know, operate the people who are really strong operators who can help them optimize the business. I think that's the only way to get over it because I, you know, I've worked with some really, with some companies that, um, you know, sued for shareholder oppression, books and records were a mess, they lose, right? They didn't talk to the accountant. They didn't have a really good relationship with an accountant. They didn't have a really good relationship with a lawyer. They lose. But then when I see companies that have at the ready at any given time, let me call Jay McDaniel and find out about XYZ issue. Let me call my human resources attorney, find out about XYZ issue. Let me call my accountant. The ones that are typically buttoned up are the ones that I see have almost no problems at all. I mean, notwithstanding acting fair and honest, which goes, which goes yeah. without saying. But I think it's very important for, exp uh, for uh, 
CEOs and entrepreneurs to have very trustworthy, reliable experts, um, professionals um, at the ready at all times to get to get really good advice. Because you know the advice you're giving here over the last 40 minutes, uh, obviously it's free, but it's really good advice. It's, it's phenomenal advice to some of these folks. And uh, I only hope they, they pay closer attention to some of this. Uh, you know, I, I, the last thing I, I hate to see is entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, lose the love of their life and the things they started. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's part, part of what we do. Um, yeah. What I do is a, is a guy who, litigates these things you know one don't destroy the goose that's that's laying the golden eggs for everybody i have been involved in cases where people were too aggressive and they ruined a business in the process and second thing is to realize that life goes on um you know you want to my clients my the big thing i try and do for my clients is preserve and protect to the extent possible their investment investments in time investments in money um personal reputation, everything else, but recognizing as well that people, you know, can't be at each other's throats or can't be in business with someone who's doing something that's illegal or unlawful or, or whatever. But when you, when you, you know, the, the hard thing to do is to convince the clients that life goes on after this. Um, I always love that I did a case with two 50, 50 owners of a business, right? Um, and both of them have one price to sell and one price to buy. And, and it was, you know, and, and it was, a, it was such a, it's, it's so emotional um, with folks, but life goes on. Yeah. It's um, emotional. Life goes on. Yeah. You're right. Well, Jay, this was, this was awesome. I appreciate your insight. Um, I, I hope that the folks that are listening here, if any of them need an attorney, they reach out to you, even if it's just to get some advice, but um I, th I think that this is probably one of the largest issues that is just not spoke about with, uh, with uh, business owners and entrepreneurs. And it's an incredibly important one. So thanks for you know, having the website, the Business Divorce Law Report. Thank you for all the work you do. And uh, let's hope that we can continue to help some of these folks uh, build and develop really great businesses. So thank you for the them. opportunity. And keep it. And keep it. So again, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.